Lord, as we look in the scripture this morning, I'm just struck again that, uh, Lord, if we don't see you more clearly, if we don't somehow apprehend more of the reality and the truth of you, that we're, uh, there's a vanity to our gatherings. I pray that you help us to see Christ more clearly, and as we do, help us to honor you appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1989, Chuck Colson wrote a pretty well-known book at the time, a great title. It was called Kingdoms in Conflict. It was a good book then. It's a good book today. In fact, I was, I was browsing through it, and it just struck me how little things changed. The, the scenarios he was describing from almost 20 years ago, you could write the book today, would sound the same. It would be equally applicable. But the, the text of the book, the story and the description of the book, is basically that uh, as a Christian... You are a citizen of one heaven, of one kingdom, living in another kingdom, and there's conflict between those two kingdoms. They operate with different priorities, different set of rules, so to speak, different outcomes, and that Christians, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, living in this world are ambassadors for Christ who are trying to impart, if you will, some of the elements of the kingdom of God into this kingdom, this kingdom of the world that we live in and occupy here. And there's tension because of that. And there's a great series of stories in which Christians have had an influence on the kingdom of this world. One of them is William Wilberforce, the story that's now out uh, in movie, the same thing. But the book is about the fact that Christians live in one kingdom and this kingdom is in conflict with the kingdom of this world. The passage we're in this morning is John 18, the second half of the chapter verses 28 through 40 will be parked there this morning if you have bibles you can certainly turn there this passage is kingdoms in conflict as well if you remember last week we were in the first half of chapter 18 and we saw this intentional contrast john drew between peter his loving follower and jesus and we saw gosh peter has feet of clay well intended but it's one of those things the rule at our house for me is don't help me Unless I ask you, don't help. And Jesus was kind of saying to Pete, don't help. Pete's well-intended and he loves Christ, but everything he puts his hand to, it's misguided in some way or another. Everything Jesus does is perfect. This morning in the second half of chapter 18, we have another very intentional contrast. And the contrast is, is both personal and larger. The contrast is between Jesus personally and the religious leaders of Jerusalem and Judea and the political and military rulers of the day. Jesus is contrast with the kingdom of this world represented by its religious and political leaders. And if you remember, we, we're getting to the point in verse 28. Jesus has celebrated what we call the Last Supper, but the Passover meal with his disciples the night before. They were there in Jerusalem. They celebrate the Passover meal together. They leave that night, if you remember, leave the city, go across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives to a garden, and they're praying through the night there. The disciples are sleeping. Jesus is praying. The soldiers from Rome and the temple come and arrest Jesus. He's brought back. Last week, we looked at him going and speaking with Annas, one of the former high priests. And by the way, to get a good picture of all the elements of that night, you've got to read all four Gospels because each of them are picking elements that are important for their version of the story. John doesn't fill us in on all these details, but we know that Jesus was then led to, Chi or, yes, to Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin, and that's where we're picking up here this morning at verse 28. 
they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. This is occupied all of the night. It's early in the morning. They themselves, the Jewish leaders, did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. I'll mention a couple things as we go through the passage, uh, starting here. The praetorium was named for the Roman ruler. This was his official residence. And normally these guys lived in Caesarea, but they had a place in Jerusalem as well. And it's thought that perhaps Pilate's praetorium here was in the Roman fortress that sat at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. If you guys look at maps of the Temple Mount in the time of Christ, you'll see that, um, not that it pleased the Jews, but the Romans had a large fortress on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. This became important in the Jewish uprising. If you read about what that looked like, the Roman fortress plays a big part when Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. But it's thought that that's probably where they're going now, centrally located right there near the temple. Remember, too, because this is the Passover season, the Jews have gone through the ceremonial cleansing of their own homes. So do you remember what they'd do? They'd go through and they'd take anything with leaven and they'd pitch it. And this was symbolically, they were getting rid of all the evil and the deficiencies of, of their life. And so ceremonially, the Jews were clean. And that meant that they could participate in the Passover. And, and remember, the Passover is one term that can actually mean at least three different things. The Passover can mean the lamb that was slain for the Passover. Passover can mean the Passover meal or the day that the Passover was celebrated. It can also mean the feast that followed. This isn't one day event. This is a week-long celebration. So the Jews wanted to remain ceremonially clean so that even though the Passover meal had been celebrated the night before, Passover feast is still to come. They don't want to be ceremonially defiled. And so they can't go into this Gentile dwelling because it's unclean. They didn't cleanse it of the leaven and something else that might make them ceremonially unclean. So what you have here, by the way, with the contrast, the Jews are standing outside. Jesus is standing inside, and you've got Pilate going back and forth in between. So Pilate went out to them and says, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Pilate, don't ask questions. Just do what we want you to do. So Pilate said to them, Well then, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. The leaders are saying, look, we're, we don't want to punish this guy. We want him killed. And remember that under Roman rule, the Jews cannot personally exercise capital punishment. Some commentators will tell you they're not sure about this. Because in Acts 7, Stephen is taken out and stoned, the church's first martyr. But very different there. You've got a group of impassioned people who run out in the heat of the moment and stone Stephen to death according to the law. The law, if you, capital punishment under Jewish law was stoning. Here, though, these are cool heads ruling and they've been plotting and planning this and they're not going to risk an uprising or Roman uh, put down of the Jews, so they're being cool and calculated about it. And so in Matthew's gospel, at least, Jesus had told his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected, and I will be crucified. So right here, John's just reminding them, Jesus had said it would be crucifixion. That would be the manner of his death. Verse 33, So Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative? What did others tell you about me? In other words, it would affect the way he answers him. Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate says to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate says to him, what is truth? When he'd said this, he went out and says to the Jews, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to mention, don't miss John's point here in verse 40. When he tells you Barabbas is a robber, Mark tells you Barabbas is a murderer. Why doesn't John tell you Barabbas is a murderer? He uses the Greek term for robber. It's because he wants you to think back in your mind to John 10. And in John 10, when Jesus is talking about Jesus the good shepherd, he says those who, those who would be shepherds, they're, they're not shepherds, they're robbers. And what do robbers do? They steal and they kill and they destroy. But good shepherds like Jesus, they give life. They lay down their lives for the shepherd. In other words, John's making sure we know that when the Jews say, give us Barabbas, they're saying, give us someone who steals life. Give us someone who destroys life over the prince of life. We reject the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We'll take the guy who steals our life instead. That's their choice. The center of this text is at verse 36 and 37, and this is where we see the conflict between kingdoms. There in verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom is not of this realm. In fact, he says, That's why I'm in this predicament in the first place. I'm being rejected because this isn't my kingdom. He's being opposed by the leaders of the kingdom of this world, religious leaders and a Roman politician. He says the reason for his rejection at this level between kingdoms is this isn't his kingdom. And then in verse 37, he said his purpose for being in the world is to testify to the truth. So what's the difference between God's kingdom and the kingdom of this world? Jesus says in this passage, and John frames it so we don't miss it, that truth is the difference between these two kingdoms. The difference between the kingdom of God Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of this world is truth. Truth is what distinguishes those two realms. Just as surely as John contrasted Jesus with Peter in the first half of 18, he's now contrasting him with Jewish leaders and political leaders, those who represent the kingdom of this world. Start with the Jewish leaders. They're delivering a guiltless man to be executed by the Romans. And they're doing it, as far as they're concerned, with a clear conscience. Now think about this for just a minute. They're breaking at least five of the Ten Commandments in doing this. They have no other, God says, have no other gods before me. They're God standing in front of them and he's being rejected. Don't use the name of, of God in vain. 
they are attaching God's name to their murder of the Messiah. Don't murder. They know what they're doing is murder. Don't bear false witness. The other scripture said they've elicited false testimony against Jesus. And don't covet. And it says of Pilate, he knew that it was because of envy or covetousness that they delivered Jesus over to him. Here, religious leaders breaking at least five of the Ten Commandments with a clear conscience. In other words, they don't have anything to do with the truth. In fact, later, you remember Judas. Judas is given up to wickedness. Satan's free to come in and inhabit him to betray Jesus. And yet he experiences remorse later because he knows what he did was not in line with truth. So he comes back to these Jewish leaders and he says, I've betrayed innocent blood. What does Proverbs say about the betrayal or the death of innocent blood? It's one of the things God hates. What do they say? What's that to us? You see to it. You take care of it. We're not concerned. These are the religious leaders. Truth has nothing to do with where they're coming from. They suppress the truth because they're after what they're after. It has nothing to do with God's kingdom. It has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with the truth. The Jewish leaders rejected truth in every way they could. It wasn't just a political representation of the kingdom of earth that crucified Christ. It was a religious one. And it was, it's just a great reminder. You guys know this. Religion does not inherently have anything to do with God or truth. And when these religious leaders rejected Christ, they were rejecting truth. And you can go to Christian churches today that don't believe the Scriptures are God's Word, that don't believe Jesus was deity, that don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, and they'll tell you they're Christians. And of course, you can travel the world and find every other kind of religion under the sun. Religion, religious power, in this kingdom, crucified Christ as much as a political power did through the rejection of truth. And then Pilate does the same thing. Think about a couple things here. Pilate says once here in chapter 18, two times in 19, so three times total. Pilate says three times of Jesus, he's faultless. He's without guilt. I find no guilt in him. But what does he do with him? First, he has him scourged. A guiltless man, Pilate knowingly says, no fault in him, has, his, has him scourged. When pressed further, what does he do? He condemns an innocent man to the most cruel form of execution the Romans could come up with, crucifixion. And what does he do afterwards? He washes his hands as if to say, I'm not guilty, but Jesus couldn't have been crucified if he hadn't been complicitous in this. And you remember where he's sitting? He's sitting in the seat of judgment. So here is the representative of the kingdom of this world dispensing judgment. And you know, to get judgment or justice right, what do you got to have? You got to have the truth. Judgment or justice cannot be served apart from truth. So here is the representative of the kingdom of this world sitting in the judgment seat, dispensing the world's version of justice only by denying what's true. This man's without guilt three times. Pilate has him crucified anyway. And think about this too. Pilate says rhetorically to Jesus, what is truth? As if to say, maybe, there is no such thing as truth. Or, there's your version of truth and there's my version of truth. 
Now, this is an early statement on relativism. What's true? Doesn't matter. But who's he saying that to? When he says it, he's looking in the eyes of truth incarnate. He's looking into the face of a man who can't do anything but tell the truth. He's looking at God the Son who is in himself truth. Remember in John 1 when John describes Jesus, he says God's grace and truth were made known through Christ. Jesus had said this night before what? I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And when Pilate says, what is truth as if there's no answer, he's saying it to the person who is within himself all truth, ultimate truth, ultimate reality. In religion and in politics, the kingdoms of this world confronted the kingdom of God, and it was over the issue of truth in the person of Christ. It wasn't just Jesus that was on trial. It was truth that was on trial. And this is the epitome. If Jesus, truth incarnate, was denied by religion of the world and by, by politics of the world, what do you think you and I live in today? The kingdom of the world chose darkness and half-truths and lies rather than truth and light and life when it said no to Christ, truth in Christ. That's what was on trial. Jesus is crucified because he simply told the truth. You remember when he could have said nothing? You remember before the Sanhedrin? And so when they've asked one thing and another and Jesus has kind of cryptically said one thing and another, finally Caiaphas says, are you the Messiah? Now all he had to do was be silent, but what does he do? He says, yes I am. That was the truth. And when Pilate says, are you a king? He says, yes, I am. Just not of this kingdom. And that was the truth. All Jesus did to get crucified, in other words, was to tell the truth. Christ was rejected and truth was rejected. There's a, I, I watched this week again a part of Jesus of Nazareth. I, and I watched the section dealing with this, this portion of the, the story. There's this element in the movie where Jesus has been scourged and Pilate is sitting in the hall of judgment and Jesus is framed in the light of the doorway as he comes back in with the crown of thorns and the robe over him. And I love that scene because it, it crystallizes for me visually. This is what we've... Christ is what we've got to see here. Jesus before Pilate. Pilate's looking and all he can see is Christ. And this, we're in the Easter season. We're kind of a non-traditional church. We don't do a lot of the liturgical type elements. But we think about this. And Resurrection Sunday's coming up. When you think about Jesus this Easter season and approaching Resurrection Sunday, somehow we want to see him clearly. We want to see Christ somehow more clearly. We want to apprehend his reality. Truth is just reality. Reality apprehended, if you will. That's truth. And so, whether it's this text or any of the other texts we look at in John this season, I hope, apart from everything else, you see Christ more clearly. So, just thinking of a couple things, the test that Jesus faces here, he just shines through. No matter what's thrown at him, he shines through. So, when he's confronted with lies, he tells the truth. When his friends betray him, he remains the truest of friends. 
When his enemies lie against him, persecute him, and crucify him, what does he do? He goes willingly to the cross and asks God to forgive their sins. The just one receives no justice, and yet in his crucifixion and death, he satisfies God's justice so you and I can be saved. To know Christ is to know truth. If you know Christ, you know the most important aspect of reality or truth you can ever know. And if you reject Christ, you reject the ultimate reality. You reject the most ultimate aspect of truth that could ever be apprehended. To know Christ is to know truth. To reject Christ is to reject truth. The other thing is this. You and I as Christians, we're called to be, uh, you know, Christians mean little Christ, little anointed ones. Jesus was the anointed one. We're supposed to be like him, little versions of Christ. Jesus said, for this reason I came into the world, what? To bear witness to the truth. And do you know what your role and my role is in the world as little Jesus's? It's to bear witness to the truth. We're to be just like Christ. Our kingdom is in conflict in our life, or should be in some way, because we bear witness to the truth in a world in which truth is not desirable. Do you remember in Acts 1 when Jesus gets ready to leave his disciples, he says, hang around in Jerusalem, wait, I'm going to send the Spirit, and after you get the Spirit, this is your job, you're to be my witnesses. The Greek term for witness, you guys know, is martyr. You're to be my martyrs. We use the term martyr, but it's, it's, it's with the thought in mind of it's a person who bears their last witness, as it were, to Christ through death. But Jesus says we are commissioned as truth bearers, as truth tellers, as witnesses. That's our role in this world. We've been left behind. We've been given the Spirit. We've been given God's Word so that we can tell the world the truth. God could just take us up to heaven. In other words, like Christ, our mission in the earth is to tell the truth. If the truth sets people free, and Jesus says it does in John 8, then the most important ministry you and I have, and the kindest, most loving thing we can do for anyone we care about, is to tell them the truth. And if you look back in the scriptures, back in the upper room discourse, Jesus said of Christians, when I send you the Holy Spirit, this is what he's going to do in John 16, 13. I'll send you the Spirit of truth. He'll guide you into all the truth. Or John 17, 17, Jesus prays that God the Father would set apart those who believed in him. And how would he set them apart for himself and for his purposes? He'd do it by his truth. Your word is truth. By the way, if you don't read your Bible, if you don't read the scriptures, you're missing the greatest testimony God has to the truth. God can speak to us in a number of ways, and he does, through other people, through circumstance. He'll use whatever he wants. That's all fine and good. But he's left the truth repository is in the Bible. And when you and I read the scriptures, we're putting ourselves in that medium in which God the Holy Spirit tells us things that are true. And then those are the things that we go out and tell others about. My scripture verse for 2007, this was just uh, providential, but is out of uh, Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. God, show us your truth and then help us to be truth bearers to the world around us.
And by the way, this sounds, uh, you know, if you're in church on Sunday morning, this sounds uh, good. You get stirred up a little bit. Let me just encourage you with this too, though. When Jesus told the truth, he was crucified. And when you tell the truth in some forums, it's not an if, it's a when, you will be, if not crucified, you'll be persecuted. You'll be rejected. You'll be mocked. You'll be scorned. You'll get the rejection of some form or another. So you don't go out glibly telling people the truth as if there's no repercussions to you. There will be repercussions. And Peter knew something about this. And he said in 1 Peter 2, you've been called to suffer like Christ suffered. He left you an example to follow in his steps who committed no sin. He didn't suffer because he did wrong. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He didn't lie. Suffered because he told the truth. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We're called to tell truth to ourselves and to others. And when we do, you just need to realize some of that's going to come back in ways you might not like. There's going to be a price to pay in some forums, in some ways, for telling the truth, just as there was for Jesus. Tell the truth and realize there will be repercussions, and bear that the way Jesus did. Bear that the way Jesus did. In the end, Jesus Christ is the way, He's the truth, and He's the life. And it's that truth element that puts His kingdom in conflict with the kingdom of this world. And it's that truth element that will put you in conflict with the other elements of the kingdom of this world you rub shoulders with. But you're called to follow him by being a truth teller, a witness to the truth, knowing some of that's going to bring suffering. That's okay. Because in all that, you're representing Jesus, the Prince of Life, and his kingdom by being that truth teller just as he was. Let's pray. Lord, it strikes me that the innocent lamb didn't do anything wrong, but was rejected and crucified anyway. Lord, Pilate didn't know it, and Jewish leaders didn't know it, but they were serving your predetermined purposes that Jesus' death, his guiltless sacrifice on the cross, would pay the penalty to our sins. Lord, his resurrection on resurrection morning was testimony to the fact that that offering was accepted. Lord, I know as those who follow you, you call us to know you and to be like you. And Lord, this Easter season, help us to see, to apprehend the reality of Christ a little bit more fully. And as we do so, honor yourself by conforming us to his image a little bit more fully. And Lord, help us like him to bear witness to the truth knowing that it puts us in conflict with the kingdom and the elements of this world, Lord, but knowing that in doing so, we're part of your redemptive purpose in the work in bringing salvation to people around us and in honoring you. Lord, help all that we do and say and think, all that we put our hand to, Lord. Help those things. Help us to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.